ask it all of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you now to take your copies of God's Word in your hands and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We will be considering together this morning a single verse from John chapter 19, verse 28. Reverend Mabbott, in good Presbyterian form, has been leading you through the Gospel of Luke faithfully over the past year, expositing verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Luke's account of who Jesus is, his life and ministry, and the Lord, and Lord willing, he will lead you through those chapters concerning Jesus, his passion, Jesus' great work of finishing all the Father sent him to accomplish, the salvation of his elect people through the shedding of his own blood through suffering and death. In our passage this morning, we find ourselves thrust into the deepest depth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's sufferings on the cross. And if you have been a Christian for a day, you are familiar with the depictions of the brutal treatment of Jesus. Many of you have been Christians for many days. But whether you are new or seasoned in the faith, or whether you have been yet been brought to saving faith in Jesus, it is good for us to be reminded of these things periodically. All that Christ suffered for his chosen people, through which we have received the right to be called children of God, to have his name given to us, the very name of Christ. The name above all names impressed personally upon us, each and every believer in Jesus. And this morning, we will look upon a word from Christ that expresses quite vividly what he endured in his body and upon his soul in submission to the will of the Father that we might inherit that right. By God's grace, might we hear that word afresh this morning. that we might be humble before the author and finisher of our faith and in our humility glorify God. So with that, let us give careful attention to the reading of God's life-giving word. John chapter 19, in verse 28. This is the word of Almighty God. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken in his holy, life-giving, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. We have all been thirsty at one point or another in our lives, haven't we? Statistically speaking, we are all likely walking around dehydrated to one degree or another. Our bodies are constantly losing water. And unless we make 
it our business to replenish those lost fluids, we will begin to become thirsty, which is a late sign that our hydration is less than optimal. Few of us, I think, have experienced severe thirst, though perhaps some of you have. The possibility of going without water for any long period of time is not, generally speaking, something we run up against on a daily basis. Water is common to us. We take it for granted. Yet even as we, in our relative comfort, in our air-conditioned lives, with hardly a shortage of readily available beverages suited to our taste, the experience of thirst is not lost on us. Here in our text, we are presented with Jesus crucified, and he is thirsty. This, however, was no ordinary thirst that dried up our Lord's strength like a pot shard and made his tongue to cling to his jaws. It was the thirst of hell that brought Jesus to the dust of death. When we as a body of believers confess together the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, we are confessing this truth. On the cross, Jesus experienced an eternity of suffering we cannot fathom. In our text this morning, we hear the expression of that hellish experience, which Christ upon the cross has suffered for you. I thirst. Thirst with certainty is the most common description of what the experience of hell is like and will be like for eternity for those who reject so great a salvation which Jesus has accomplished for sinners and offers to any who will come to him. Those whom the Father wills, whom he draws to himself in Christ. Jesus himself, as he made his way to Jerusalem, where he knew these things would take place, describes the experience of hell in this way, in the telling of a story about a rich man and Lazarus, which we find in the 16th chapter of Luke's gospel. You may recount it. Jesus is reclining at a meal with his disciples in the home of a certain Pharisee. And Jesus tells his company this story. Let me read it to you. And Jesus said to them, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, 
Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. What was Jesus teaching his hearers? If they and we also will not hear the testimony of Moses and the prophets, that is the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, the biblical witness pointing forward to Christ, and by extension the canonized books of the New Testament, which point back to Christ, shining the light upon him who is the fulfillment of the old. If they will not hear, if any will not hear, then they will by no means escape the same fate as the rich man. As Paul says in Romans 10, after having laid out the means of salvation through the ministry of the word, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Faith that saves us from the flame of eternal torment we deserve, where thirst shall never be quenched, comes by hearing God's word. It comes by hearing the word of Christ. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. Faith that he has fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, both in his active and his passive obedience. So that in Christ, through faith in him, Though we die, we shall never taste death, because Jesus has tasted death for us. Jesus thirsted that we should never thirst. John's gospel provides us the only account of this statement from our Lord saying, I thirst. In the Greek, it is a single word expressing the physical anguish an exhaustion of Jesus as he hung from the cross. When Jesus says, I thirst, he had then entered into his third hour of having been crucified. And the final hour of his most intense suffering before giving up his spirit. The Gospels combined provide us with seven statements from the lips of Jesus after he was crucified, of which our text is the fifth. 
And it's by this statement that we might understand better the paradox of Jesus' suffering as he submits to the Father to accomplish all his Father's will. Whereby he fulfills Scripture, ultimately to receive the promised satisfaction for his travail, suffered for the sake of sinners. Suffering here in our text, summed up in a word, accommodated for us into two, I thirst. I want for us for a moment to consider what is the great paradox that we are presented as Jesus is nearing the completion of his passive work of obedience to the Father's will. The Apostle John in his gospel makes very clear to his readers both the deity and the humanity of Christ. If we think back to the beginning of John's gospel, we know it well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then skipping forward to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why does John's gospel start out this way? Well, firstly, because it's true. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, who became man to live the life each and every one of us in this room ought to live, and yet for sin cannot. This is what the language of the Nicene Creed communicates to us. What we confess is true concerning the person of Christ, that Jesus, the Son of God, is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. That is Jesus, the Son of God and equal to God in every way, for He is eternally begotten of the Father by His active obedience Obedience to the law, moral, ceremonial, civil, was perfect in his submission to every jot and tittle of the law. As was necessary under the old dispensation of the covenant of God's grace towards his elect and beloved people, both Jews and Gentiles. He accomplished this in himself through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood at the hands of lawless men. That is the everlasting covenant made better in every way in Jesus because he is better in every way than those things that came before, those types and shadows, which merely pointed to Christ who is their fulfillment. But also in addition to Jesus' submission to do all that the law positively requires, He also submitted to his Father's will to do all that the law broken demands, to offer himself a suitable sacrifice to satisfy the righteous indignation and wrath of God 
for the sin of his people and to die the death each one of us deserves. That is Jesus' passive obedience. For the Son of God to do all his Father's will, to accomplish all things that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, required that God the Son would himself become a man, that he might present himself as a suitable substitute for his people, perfect in his being, that he may be perfect in their place, in our place, to suffer for our sins, to be made to be sin, that we may become the righteousness of God. As Paul writes to the Philippian church, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is precisely what John stresses concerning who Jesus really is. He's the God-man. And from John's near proximity as an eyewitness to Christ crucified, who had just moments before... From the cross, entrusted to John, the disciple whom he loved, the care and responsibility for his mother, Jesus cries out, I thirst. And this is a great paradox. Here is God in the flesh, the eternal Son, the one through whom the whole world was made, who in the beginning held all the water that is upon the earth, as it were, in the hollow of his hands, in need of a drink. Here is the one who offers to all who thirst living waters that they should not thirst again. Here is the Savior of the world, the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the snake crusher, long ago prophesied as the seed of the woman to destroy the devil and set right what had been ruined through sin, now come down from heaven to ransom worthless and yet to God precious sinners to save his elect people from their sin and its penalty to save us, we who are his, from God, And from his wrath kindled against our sin. Indeed, to save us from himself. When Jesus Christ on that great and terrible day will come again. Not in weakness. But as a conquering king. With all the might of heaven. Dressed in arrayed for battle. Flowing in his train. Leading the armies of God in triumph. And victory as he vanquishes all his enemies, both those from without and those from within. When sheep will be separated from goats, when the chaff of the wheat will be gathered and the tares bound together to be burnt. And yet, here is Jesus in the midst of his most terrible suffering. Exhausted and weak 
experiencing for us what you and I deserve. And he is thirsty. And it had been a long time since Jesus had had a drink. Since his being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane the night prior, through his illegal trial before the Sanhedrin, through his examination by Pilate and the lampooning of Herod and his court, through the beatings, the scourging, the spitting, the taunting, the mockery to the cross. Jesus had had not had a drop to cool his tongue or quench his thirst. Jesus was, however, in the unfolding of his torment, offered a drink. This detail is absent from John's gospel, but we find it recorded in both Matthew's and Mark's. Just before Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to the cross, he was offered a drought of wine mingled with myrrh. An anesthetic, bitter as gall, which would alleviate to a degree the excruciating pain of being crucified. Now there's some disagreement as to who offered this drink this drugged wine to Jesus. The Bible doesn't give us a clear answer. In Luke's gospel, we read that there was a group of women that followed Jesus, mourning and lamenting him as he made the journey from the Roman garrison to Golgotha, where he would be executed. There are historical accounts of Israelite women providing this mercy ministry to condemned men as it is possible that such women were the ones who offered this drink to Jesus. It is also possible that the offering was from the Roman soldiers, tasked with the horrible, awful business of executing Jesus' sentence. A drug man would be more compliant to do what was being done to him. Both are possible explanations for the origin of this drink. But regardless of who offered it to Jesus, the remarkable thing is that Jesus refuses the wine. Why? Because if Jesus were in any way to diminish what was being done to him on the cross, he would not fulfill his ministry. He would not accomplish all things. The scripture would remain unfulfilled. He had to suffer in all his being the dreadful consequences for sin. The myrrh-mingled wine would have not only dulled his nerves to pain, but also his mind, his thoughts, his emotions. He had to keep his wits about him. Because he had to suffer the full wrath of God for sin. Undiluted. Unmitigated. Undiminished. Else sin's penalty would remain for everyone in this room. Our sin debt would remain unpaid. We would still be dead in our trespasses and sin. 
Jesus declined the drink of mercy because he had to drink the awful cup that was presented to him in the garden. The one over which Jesus sweated would appear as drops of blood. The one he would have had taken from him had it not been his Father's will for him to drink it. Jesus passed on mercy for his sufferings to the glory of his Father by fulfilling all they had together planned for Jesus to accomplish before the foundation of the world so you and I could have life and have it abundantly. So without anesthetic, Jesus was crucified. And now at the ninth hour, when the sky was darkened, Jesus says, I thirst. And here we are given a view into the resolve of Jesus, displayed for the whole world to see. In a few short verses, we read of Jesus' power to lay down his own life. To give up his own spirit. And we should note that even when things are in their bleakest, God remains in control. Jesus is throughout in charge. But just before Jesus publicly announces his victory over the devil and over sin and in three days' time over death, declaring it is finished, we see in our text that Jesus has already accomplished everything he came to do. And he knew it. And what a strange thing it is then that Jesus would choose to suffer a moment longer than was necessary for him to fulfill his mission. Why did Jesus prolong his sufferings? He did it to fulfill Scripture. And here we see where Jesus' strength to endure suffering for the sin of the world is found. It is in the Scriptures. Jesus' eye is ever on the Word of God. He indeed knew, as our text says, that all things had been accomplished. What things? Everything. Everything written in the scroll of the book about him. Jesus came to fulfill all of Scripture, both in his life and now in his approaching death. Just moments before Jesus says, I thirst, he cries out hauntingly, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, quoting the opening lines of Psalm 22, Jesus affirms the very scripture that he was fulfilling. He gives us a glimpse into the anguish that he bore in his soul. This is the source of Jesus' anguish that is at the bottom of his thirst. It is the wrath of God poured out upon him crucified, relentlessly crushing him in his soul and tormenting him in his body for the sake of sinners, for our transgressions, because it pleased the Lord to crush him. For the first time since before time, reaching all the way back to eternity past, the Son of God 
on the cross at Calvary was cut off from communion with his Father. And so would it be for each of us if he were not. There is a loneliness to Jesus' sufferings we cannot begin to measure. And here at the cross, Jesus is utterly alone in his humanity and in his deity. This is hell. An eternity of anguish, a body and soul separated from the blessing and goodness of union and communion with God. Experienced there on the cross in a moment of time. And I think we would miss something of Jesus' suffering if we were to gloss over that loneliness. Approximately, Jesus' nearest companions are now two criminals. His disciples, who he called friends, were now scattered. All that remain are the women and John. Yet they too are at a distance so far as the gulf between the rich man and Lazarus. And I do not think it's too far-reaching to consider that this lone word, I thirst, is an expression of Jesus' human desire for compassion as he suffered hell for sinners. That perhaps someone might offer him the mercy of a drink just a drop of water to cool his tongue. If we go beyond our passage, we see that Jesus is answered. The Roman soldiers standing by, waiting for Jesus to die, offer him a drink. They give him vinegar. There is no compassion for Jesus here to be found. Just as there is no compassion upon any not found in him. In Jesus' last moments, having been given his drink, the words of Psalm 69 were fulfilled. They gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Brothers and sisters, might we let that sit with us? Up to his final moments, having finished all his work, Jesus saw no relief. He paid it all, all to which we owe. Jesus drank down to the dregs the cup of God's wrath on our behalf that he might guide us to springs of living water welling up to eternal life. And it is that outcome, that glorious end to all suffering for those who endure through the shadowy existence, this shadowy existence, we who are pilgrims in a foreign land making our way home kept by the grace of God to believe the gospel and to persevere in faith through every trial because Jesus suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring many sons to glory, 
Brothers and sisters, adopted in Christ our elder brother to bring us to the household of God and make us who by grace believe upon Jesus heirs and co-heirs of the kingdom of God with Christ. And just a moment ago, I quoted from Isaiah 53.10, where the scripture says that it pleased God to crush Jesus. Here it continues. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Believer in Jesus, you are the labor of Christ's soul that gives him satisfaction. He looks upon you and says, You were worth it. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he drink that cup of wrath? He did it so you, believer in Jesus, may drink with him in his Father's house. That final cup, that endless cup of blessing, that cup of of rejoicing. Think upon that as you prepare yourselves for the next time you come to the Lord's table. Believer in Jesus, because of what Christ has done for you, there is no wrath to be found for you in that cup. Only blessing. May we rejoice in the days ahead. Yes, mourning for our sin and its consequences, but singing in our hearts that because of Jesus, because he was thirsty, we shall in him never thirst. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray, help us as we remember what you have accomplished, that the scripture is fulfilled. That sin's debt is paid in full because it is your delight to bring many sons and daughters into your presence, into your home, into your family, in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.